Welcome to Let's Ask Better Questions, the podcast where we discuss hot school topics for parents. I'm Damon Cooper, Director of Teaching and Learning at Central Coast Grammar School. And round the table today, we have Dr. Christy Goodwin, an expert on the impact of technology on young children's health, learning and development, and mother of three. We also have Gavin Summers, Director of Innovative Learning and Digital Literacy at Central Coast Grammar School and a father of four. And Taylor, who's getting ready to move up to high school next year. We're here to talk about whether school children have too much technology or too little. Christy, what do you think? I think we're at this era, we're living in a tsunami of screens. Technology is now an integral part of our lives and obsessing over quantifying the amount of time that children and teenagers spend online is almost a redundant concept. Technology is now woven um, into so many facets of our lives. So I really encourage parents to look beyond the how much question. I encourage parents to be the pilot and not the passenger of the digital plane. And as the pilot of the digital plane, parents need to set boundaries around not only how much time their children spend, but also more importantly, I believe, looking at what they're doing with their their time on devices. Is it leisure? Is it learning? Is it supporting their well-being? Uh, Is it age appropriate? Is it congruent with their developmental needs? So I think we really need to shift the conversation from quantifying screen time as a metric and looking at having more nuanced, broader conversations, particularly around what they're doing with their time online, uh, where they're using devices, having boundaries around the no-go tech zones at home, um, and also looking at how they're using them. You know, are they using them in ergonomically correct ways that won't compromise their health and well-being? Gavin, as a teacher, a user of technology and a parent, what do you think? Well, I'd echo that. I think it's all about teaching the students, teaching children about how to self-assess some of the skills of self-awareness of, well, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Is it affecting me in any other way? Should I or could I be doing something else which is gonna enrich my life more? Parents need to be able to create those boundaries, but as children get older, like with any frame of life, they they, they wanna get more and more independent. So it's our job as teachers and and parents to ensure that our children can self-assess what they are doing and the impact of what they are doing on their own lives and the lives of the community that's around them, their immediate community and their wider community. And I think that's so vital because empowering students to um, have a locus of control over their digital behaviours is paramount because as you alluded to, Gavin, we need students to start to self-regulate because technology will be such an integral component of their lives. And really empowering students, I believe, from the very early years of primary school um, with a knowledge and understanding about what I call their digital wellbeing, how technology is impacting on their basic developmental needs and giving them strategies and science behind what they're basic psychological and physiological needs are and then making sure that technology is used in a way that supports those needs not stifles them and I think we often underestimate the capabilities and skills that our children can possess if we upskill them and support them in that place. And I think most adults would admit that we feel tethered to technology. This is not a problem that any of us are immune to. I call it the digital pull. And technology, you know, meets our basic psychological drivers. And it's also been designed to prey on some of our psychological weaknesses. Sometimes it's hard sometimes to switch off. And we know based on the way our brain works that often, especially if we're using social media and it's a pleasurable experience for us, maybe it's posting things on TikTok that are are shared and, and liked, maybe it's an Instagram post that's quite popular, our brain releases dopamine and dopamine literally hijacks the part of the brain that would normally self-regulate. So it's that impulse control center that literally shuts off. Um, So our capacity to self-regulate is often impaired. Taylor, as someone who uses it every day, what do you think? 
Well, I believe that at school we have an appropriate amount, but at homes, I know that my family, we have a good amount when we get like before and after school. It's monitored and my parents are always aware of what we're doing online or on social media. But some families, I know they're on their phones as soon as they get home and as soon as they as soon as they wake up, their phone's next to their bedside table, straight away on social media, checking everything, looking at how much likes they may have on a post, at who's commented on posts or TikToks, which is a very big popular app now that a lot of my friends use. But parents should monitor and limit the amount of time we're on them. Whose responsibility is it to teach kids about quality screen time, self-regulation and the dangers of using apps? Does that lie at school or at home or somewhere else? I think it's a mixture of the two. It's, it's definitely got to be a mixture of the two. Uh, and going back to what was what was just said, uh, the modelling from parents, myself as a parent, I find myself constantly thinking, am I modelling what I'm preaching, basically, to my children? Uh, so I'd, the, the best way to teach my children of, of how to use technology outside of the classroom uh, as a parent is to model that to them. It's such a... a powerful thing if they see that you are on your phone constantly then then they're going to think that that's what people do and if they see that you can put that technology to one side for those community times then that's also um, like a really strong indication that children pick up on so there's there's definitely uh, a mixture between what you do as a parent and and what we teach at school Um, so school is a place where where we prepare students for what they will face in the future. So it's definitely a place where teachers should be uh, teaching these types of skills. Because if, if a student leaves the school and they haven't been exposed to how to self-regulate and how to use things appropriately, whatever tool, then, um, then I think teachers need to be looking at what they're actually teaching when they're there. Look, I completely um, agree. We need parents and educators to be singing from the same hymn sheet. We need uh, the support from both parties. I think upskilling parents. So many parents feel confused and concerned because unfortunately, the media, the popular media, tends to demonise technology in kids. So the popular media reports we hear are usually only about the negative consequences and the adverse effects of technology. So parents have a very um, tainted view of the impact of technology. Uh, so they often feel ill-equipped to navigate this at home. And, and in parents' defence, we are, as parents today, the very first generation of parents who are navigating this digital terrain. And we're raising kids and teenagers, I call them screenagers, uh, in a world where the young people know more about a concept than what their parents do. So parents naturally feel ill-equipped to navigate this terrain. Um, and then their notion of school is very different too. And, it, and that f- kind of flips a little bit of, of the, the, the idea of, uh, of a parent and a student, a parent and a child, of, of, uh, of who can teach who, mm. who's teaching who how to, how to navigate life at the moment. But there's a fantastic opportunity there of, of using your child to, te- to upskill you. Absolutely. And that teaches that teaches um, children everywhere that um, you have got something to offer right now that is going to enrich somebody else's life. Mm. I often say to parents that your IT help desk at home is your five-year-old. Uh, so use them for your technical support. Um, but the thing that kids and teenagers don't have is the brain architecture to often manage the technology just because of the way the brain is biologically wired. You mm. know, the impulse, the, the prefrontal cortex that helps with our self-regulation skills, our higher-order logic thinking skills literally is not online it's not developed Mm. so your child will have the technical prowess you've got the 
life experience and the brain architecture to help your child navigate this terrain. So you really are well equipped to be the pilot of the digital plane. I believe the biggest point that parents need to promote to their children is that anytime you post or type message something on um, a social media platform or online, it's there forever. It's your becomes a part of your digital footprint. That's the biggest thing I find with social media, online search engines, online games. Anytime you t post something, it's there forever. You can't get rid of it. And people can use this against you in your later life when you're pitching for a job. It's mm, so critical. And what Taylor touched on, I use an alternative term instead of, it's very much aligned to your digital footprint, but I talk about this idea of your digital DNA and this idea that every post, every comment can be digitally archived and that can have long-term consequences. And that's hard for young people to really understand both the magnitude and long-term consequences of what they're posting because, again, the way their brain is wired, they're not thinking about long-term repercussions. I mean, I worked with um, a young gentleman who was on the cusp of signing a very lucrative contract with a large sporting club and he was in the early his early 20s and he had a knock at the door um, from a policeman who had come around and he had five years prior um, he had distributed digitally distributed some inappropriate photos of his girlfriend at the time now this repercussion was five years after the event and it ended up resulting in this young boy losing his lucrative sporting contract and so for young people who are impulsive who aren't thinking about career prospects often um, this is really hard to convey but real life experiences like that and what Taylor's sharing is so important. Gavin how important is technology for learning and for life? If you look at the type of careers that are around at the moment and maybe around in five or ten years time uh, the ability to use technology effectively is, is really important um, so at schools it's, it's very important that we teach uh, children how to utilize technology so that they're prepared for the workforce that they may go into in the future um, and the only way that we can do that is by uh, really embedding the use of technology into what we do in the school and show how it can be used effectively, whether that's basic skills in, in particular things such as word processing or spreadsheet or data analysis, analysis or things like that, or, or going into each particular subject area and seeing, well, if, if a student was really interested in this subject area and they were going for a career in this subject area, what are the particular skills that would be required for them to work effectively in, the, in this curriculum area? So I think it's, it, it is a massive thing uh, within schools to ensure that you are properly upskilling and empowering students in not just basic skills or not just our IT skills, but the, the capability to have the, the critical thinking to think, well, these are the skills I know, this is the situation at hand, um, how can I apply those skills that I know in this situation for an effective outcome or a successful outcome? Thanks, Gavin. Um, we also know that there can be a great joy in creation and one of the great powers of, of technology is its ability to create, um, to allow us to do things, to find out new things. Taylor, can you tell us about a lesson that you've loved where technology has played a key part? Well, this is pretty recent. So um, only uh, last week we started this. In Year 6, we are making a computer game that's about based on a book called um, One Small Island, based off Macquarie Island. And it's supposed to be an educational game that's going to inform people on the the troubles and difficulties they're having over there with animals and wildlife. And um, so 
One of the digital technologies teachers is coming in helping us code this game in on a, device, a platform called Scratch. I think that's one of the, the great things is that you can you can implement those skills nice and early down in the, in the kinder years. Um, if you can implement those coding thoughts of, of direction and programming and sequences of instructions in those in those younger years and then gradually progress it as they work their way up to uh, to the top of the junior school or uh, the middle school or senior college then then they get to these places where they're doing quite complex coding like c coding a computer game uh, is is not an easy thing um, but hopefully uh, Taylor's feeling confident and and she obviously feels enthusiastic about the what they're doing in the classroom and that's one of the things that I'm, that I spoke about earlier is that embedding that technology into what is happening in the classroom in a realistic, authentic way. There's no doubt that technology is a powerful tool, um, but we know that with great power comes great responsibility. Christy, what are the risks and how can we manage our digital health? Look, there are a plethora of risks depending on the age and stage of development of, of children, but I'm going to touch on what I see currently and what the research is indicating are the probably three greatest risks that span sort of the primary and secondary grades. The, the biggest risk, and I think again, none of us as adults are immune to this, is digital distraction. Uh, technology, if we're not in control of it, if I often say if we're a slave to the screen, um, then our attention can be hijacked by technology. You know, deliberate design techniques like alerts and notifications, even the mere use of coloured bubble, notification bubbles with metrics, specifically stating how many unread emails you have literally have been designed to get us hooked on the technology and checking it. So um, I'm working with uh, schools and corporate clients who are both saying that the capacity to manage our attention is going to be the most essential 21st century skill. Whether I'm talking to students or to adults about putting a fortress around our focus, um, learning strategies so that we can leverage the benefits, the incredible benefits that technology poses at the same time minimising those risks. So I think the first thing is managing our attention, that's the biggest threat. The second thing uh, that I think that technology is perhaps displacing um, is our fundamental psychological need. As humans, we have the most basic need and that is our need for relational connection. And if we're not careful, if technology is being used excessively, inappropriately or at the wrong times of the day, it really can impact on our human relationships. You know, those micro moments of connection between children and their parents, um, the real social connections that kids have with, you know, games in the playground. So again, if we're not putting boundaries in place and we're not cognizant of how we're using the technology, um, I'm worried that technology can perhaps impact. The third area that I'm seeing a significant impact um, in regards to technology is the impact on sleep. And we think that this is one of the contributing, certainly not the only reason, why we are seeing the increase in mental health issues on young people. We're often quick to blame smartphones and social media, um, and there's been some well-known studies that are suggesting that this is the root cause, but the studies at hand only show correlation. Um, we do not have the research that proves causation, and I think it's that the time on technology that's displacing the time available for sleep and also the delayed onset of sleep um, which is a really big um, impact because many young people will admit as adults too that they're scrolling before they go to sleep um, and, and having devices in bedrooms is also having a huge impact on not only the quantity of sleep but also the quality of sleep. So they're my three, digital distraction, relationships and sleep. An interesting thing I found the other day when in class we had to make refugee welcome packs online was that 
On a chart of basic human needs, it had things like shelter, food, water, and um, beds. But, you know, an interesting thing that's been implemented into that chart is that now Wi-Fi and technology is on the chart with along with um, the basic, very basic needs. The connected world brings with it its own unique set of risks, distinct perhaps from some other aspects of technology. How can we teach kids to stay safe online? Gavin? Again, in schools, it's about implementing um, programs which um, which can guide students into what, what is appropriate and what is inappropriate and um, what are some of the risks that you will come up against and, and how to handle those risks. It's really important that we're not just there saying these are the dangers of being online. We need to make sure that we are equipping them to understand when that may be happening very early on and then what they should do about it. Um, so again, there's there's programs out there uh, that can be implemented in schools which are evidence-based to, that will upskill uh, students in into how to handle these issues and how to note, notice when they're actually happening. I think the onus is also on, again, equipping parents with the knowledge base to help their kids navigate this in home territory. We know um, that a lot of online incidents are often happening at home. Um, schools' use of technology is fairly regimented, it's fairly educational, um, and there are usually very strong filtering tools in place that will stop you know, any unsavoury content being um, consumed or exposed, children being exposed to it. But in the home context, it's really about parents having open and ongoing conversations from the minute you hand your toddler a device. It's about having those ongoing discussions and teaching them about these skills. One of the really critical things that's often a surprise to parents is I really strongly discourage parents using technology as a punishment tool or as a reward tool either um, because what we know is that in most cases of children being approached by a predator, being a victim of cyberbullying, if there is any perceived threat of what I call digital amputation, our kids will never come to us when they're facing a, a digital issue. So we really uh, want to use technology as a tool, as a functional tool, but not using it as sort of the digital carrot or the digital stick. Um, and that can make a really big impact on kids. There's great opportunities when children are young as well uh, to, to model those types of things. They, even like the sharing of personal data can very easily be uh, modelled with, with younger children who are taking their first steps into playing online games of well, do you really think that should be your game attack? Don't have your name in your game attack. Let's think of something else that can represent you, which isn't giving your information across so people don't know your name. And then also when they move at first steps into social media, well, let's keep a lot of this personal data off your profile um, so that you're not putting yourself into that opportunities for people to make unwanted contact. Again, equipping parents with the, the skills to know how to navigate this at home, some really simple boundaries around where technology is used. You know, your child is much less likely to encounter um, unsavoury content or be a victim of bullying if technology is used in publicly accessible spot. Your children are very unlikely to be sending nudes when they're lying on the couch next to you at the kitchen counter, hopefully. Um, the other thing is also minimising their use at night. Uh, we know that most cyberbullying and online 
and predators approach young people at night. And part of that's because of access, but the other part is because of the way the brain is wired. And at night, the logical smart part of the brain that, that's basically the CEO or the air traffic control system, it turns off, it gets worn out, it powers down for the night. And the part of the brain is called the amygdala, which is the emotional part of the brain fires up. Now, this is a really diabolical combination because we've got the logical brain off and the emotional brain on. Uh, so knowing just how the brain works and how young people are wired, I think it gives parents the knowledge about why they play a critical role in enforcing those boundaries. If, if you can teach those uh, critical consumption skills um, in, in a topic such as history, so how can we look at information and make sure that we're not just passively consuming something? We need to be able to critically analyse what we're looking at, what different sides of a story, different perspectives, how it's promoted, whether there's propaganda type things in there, and, th and then take that into a classroom setting where you then have to try and persuade somebody about a particular argument. I mean, those types of things are really powerful. So uh, technology really enhances that experience there without teaching technology. But then from those skills that you've learned in that, they say it's a history class, um, you can then use that in your own life of where, when I am just passively scrolling on Facebook or, um, or Twitter and, and, and reading these tweets or, or Facebook posts which are, are meant to evoke certain emotions in you, um, you, you can say, well, what perspective am I looking at this at from? And, and, and are there other sides of this story? So you can take that passive consumption and, and develop it into critical consumption. A lot of things that um, children get caught up in on social media platforms especially is how many likes, how many views, how many comments they have and if they don't have a certain amount to which they think is good enough then it's bad for their self-esteem but parents need to educate them that it's the digital world is like our second world. It's better to be talking face to face than texting and we've got to understand this that that digital technology will always be there, but we can't forget about the day, our daily life, that's our social life, face-to-face -face talking to people at school. I think that's really important as well in the classroom when you're talking about how can technology be used in the classroom, that it's not just basic substitution of things, that we're not just looking at students who are sat looking at a laptop on a one-on-one one -on -one, uh, situation where they're not looking at their peers, they're not communicating with their peers. It's more about being creative, and, and making sure that the students are using that in, in realistic ways. As the world of technology is evolving so rapidly, and we totally understand that parents are trying to keep up with that, how is it that teachers and schools are, are staying ahead of that to provide the best, most intentional use of technology and support their kids to use it properly? I think support for staff is very important, just as it is with students. Um, you've got to think about, uh, well, what is your actual intent? Um, uh, are we just putting devices in students' hands for the sake of putting devices in students' hands? Or are, are we doing it in order to upskill them and empower them? So you, you've got to have a program which goes from the beginning of the journey all the way through to the end of the journey and know exactly what it is that you're trying to develop. So we need to develop those those core skills and capabilities of, of using um, particular pieces of software and, and using particular pieces of skills within those software that are going to be useful when, when students move out into, into the greater world. Um, data analysis is, is, a, is a massive topic at the moment. There's a lot of um, talk saying that that's, that's where uh, uh, careers are going to be in the future if, if you've got uh, an understanding of data. Um, 
but you have to make sure that those skills are developed from a very early age. For the parents who are listening that might be a bit uncertain about supporting their children in, in what Taylor called their second world, what are three concrete things that we can do to help and support our child? I'm going to say as the pilot of the digital plane, you've got to get the three Bs right. And the first thing, and I think we've touched on this intermittently throughout this conversation, is you've got to have um, boundaries in consultation with your child, boundaries around um, beyond just the how much. We hopefully convinced you that's a redundant thing just to look at. But instead looking at um, what they're doing online, when they're using it, uh, where they're using it, how and with whom. Know the digital playgrounds your child's playing in and then have ongoing conversations where you can use the technology with them. So first and foremost, having boundaries. The second B that we've got to make sure as parents is that we protect their basic needs. Making sure that um, technology isn't encroaching on their sleep, their, their physical movement, their opportunities for play, for relationships and language. And the third B, and I know this seems counterintuitive in the digital age, but we have to promote boredom. Uh, our brains were never designed to be switched on processing information all of the time. We need to carve out opportunities for boredom. This is when we come up with creative ideas or we solve problems that we've spent months agonizing over. Neuroscientists call it the default mode of thinking and we need opportunities um, to have a space, white space, to be bored. So boundaries, basic needs and boredom. Number one for me uh, would be talk to your children about what they're doing, uh, get involved in what they're doing. Uh, if they're using technology at school uh, to create something, then ask them to explain it to, uh, ask them to show you how they did it and what they've done. Number two would be um, model that. Uh, there, there's a great um, opportunity using technology to show a growth mindset. Um, there's so many resources out there uh, for technology where you can enhance your own understanding of pretty much whatever you are interested in, whether you want to learn how to play the piano or whether you want to paint a picture or whether you want to get good at coding, you can use technology um, to do that. So if you can model that. Um, and the third one is, is another subset of, of modeling is, is showing them how you are using technology. Um, so I'm using this to pay my bills at the, at the moment, or I'm using this to communicate with, with work, I need to send an email here, or I'm, I'm using this uh, passively, I'm just watching TV at the moment. But just modeling to them the different ways that you can use technology, and hopefully that will help them understand how they could use uh, technology effectively. What practical resources are available for parents who want to know a bit more? Christy? My two favourites that I recommend, um, the first of all, the eSafety Commissioner's website here in Australia, it's um, got a parent portal and you can find out if you've got no idea what Snapchat is and your daughter in year four is telling you she's the only girl in the whole world that doesn't have a Snapchat account, um, you can go to the eSafety Commissioner's website and find out if it's firstly age appropriate and what some of the risks and, and benefits of that platform are. My second go-to uh, go resource, and ironically these are both online, uh, is Common Sense Media. They're a non-for-profit organization in the US that review apps, websites, television shows. So when your eight-year-old son's in the EB game store telling you that the latest R-rated game is suitable for him, you can pull up this tool and, and find an age-appropriate alternative uh, that he might be happy to purchase. The Office of the eSafety Commissioner has put a lot of effort into making a resource that is available for everyone, for whether, whether you're a child, whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, um, they are resources on there. Um, which uh, you can take immediately and start implementing. And the common sense media is just fantastic for those type of parenting. Well, is this appropriate for me? 
Thank you very much for your time today, Christy, Gavin, and Taylor. And thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Ask Better Questions. You can find some links to the resources we've mentioned on the website. Never miss an episode by subscribing or by heading to our website at ccgs.newsouthwales.edu.au.